welcome to our uh, lecture today. Thank you very much. It's Peter S. Williams. I just had a presentation now where, where my, um, I was muted. Uh, just to repeat, uh, we have Peter S. Williams um, lecturing on Outgrowing God, the most recent book by Richard Dawkins, focusing especially on his uh, Richard Dawkins' claims about the Old Testament. Um, uh, I showed his webpage here, uh, which is rich in content, and there you can find reference all, also to uh, uh, all of Peter S. Williams's books, and uh, lots of links to, uh, to lectures and debates and articles as well. So, Peter, you're, you're also a colleague of mine from Gimnacolon. So, so um, um, it's a pleasure for, for me to, to have you doing the lecture. So, I will just put up your PowerPoint, which will be done in, um, um, in the way we, we need to do it right here now. Um, um, and uh, the the floor is yours. Uh, welcome. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, so um, I hopefully my sound is coming through, and you can see the pictures. Is this? Uh, it is. Oh, great, it's very great. Good to see the picture when we see you. <laughs> Marvelous. Okay, so uh, this is um, famous British atheist Richard Dawkins' most recent book, uh, aimed at a young adult audience. Uh, called Outgrowing God, and it covers a lot of territory. Uh, so I decided to just pick this area of uh, his claims about the Old Testament. And I've been doing a lot of research on this book recently because I'm writing my own uh, book in response uh, to his, which I'm just finishing copy editing at the moment. Uh, so uh, what does Richard Dawkins say about Old Testament history? Um, he asserts, I mean asserts because he doesn't actually uh, give any references or evidence for these claims, he asserts that biblical scholars don't take the Old Testament seriously as history. He asserts that uh, this or that Old Testament story makes an extraordinary claim, a miraculous claim, uh, requiring extraordinary evidence, therefore. Uh, and he asserts that there's an absence of uh, extra-biblical evidence or evidence from outside the Bible for certain historical truth claims uh, in the Old Testament stories. And finally, he asserts that the, there is uh, the existence of extra-biblical evidence that, that counts against the historical truth claims of various Old Testament stories. So let's look at these uh, four different areas whilst noting that that is a whole lot of asserting uh, for a book uh, that's supposed to be, uh, in the way it's framed, uh, supposed to be encouraging young people to ask for evidence, to not just uh, believe the religious beliefs that they're brought up with because that's what they've been brought up with. Uh, Dawkins wants to encourage young people to ask, you know, what do they believe and why should they believe it? Uh, and then he goes on to make a lot of assertions that they're meant to just kind of take on faith, uh, which is kind of ironic. So anyway, what about this assertion that biblical scholars don't take the Old Testament seriously as history? Well, of course, uh, some do and some don't. Here's a selection of uh, books uh, published by uh, professional scholars in uh, Egyptology and uh, Old Testament history and so on, uh, who certainly do uh, take the Old Testament histories uh, seriously. 
in other words, Dawkins is engaging in a false generalisation. Uh, he's uh, portraying what some people think as what everyone thinks, and that's just wrong. He asserts that uh, this or that Old Testament story makes this, this claim about, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, uh, which he then says is, is lacking. Um, but this is, uh, you can trace this back to the sceptical Scottish philosopher David Hume in the Enlightenment. This is a kind of secondhand reheated uh, Humeanism, uh, which is um, fallacious uh, in and of itself. Um, Dawkins really gets this through uh, the science popularizer from America, Carl Sagan, science population of a uh, previous generation, who was himself cribbing from David Hume. And I've got a lovely slide here from the philosopher Tim McGrew, who, who says that this claim about extraordinary evidence uh, basically seems to boil down to an argument that goes something like this. Um, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Uh, the claim that a miracle has happened in the Old Testament histories uh, is extraordinary. Uh, therefore, any evidence supporting it ought to be extraordinary as well. Uh, I'm not quite sure what I mean by extraordinary, but whatever you come up with, it's not going to work. Uh, therefore, no one is justified in believing any miracle claim. <laughs> uh, that's about the level at which uh, Dawkins is working here, I think. Well, this assertion that an absence of extra biblical evidence for certain truth claims of Old Testament stories uh, counts against their truth. Uh, well, this is uh, just a classic, uh, what a philosopher would call an argument from silence, uh, a fallacious way of arguing. Um, we have a very limited access to the past through uh, the known chain of its effects on, on the present. Um, an illustration of this, for example, is we've only got 35 of 142 books of Roman history uh, written by Livy uh, and they survived in uh, very few manuscripts which, uh, the oldest of which dates from the 4th century AD although he's uh, talking about events uh, in the BC AD crossover. We've only got four and a half of Tacitus's 14 books of Roman history and they've survived in two manuscripts from the 9th and 11th centuries. So we have this very limited access uh, to the past. And arguments from silence make a sort of undisciplined shift from an, an absence of evidence for or against some truth claim to the truth or falsity of that, that proposition. Uh, so I quite like this quote uh, from atheist Victor Stenger. I think he's right about this when he warns uh, that an absence of evidence is only uh, evidence of the absence of something uh, being true, quote, when the evidence should be there and it's not. But when we're talking about history, um, you have to be very careful about you know, claiming that the evidence should be there and it's not when we have such a limited access to the past through what just happens to have survived, uh, what happens to have been discovered of what happens to have survived and so on. Uh, if we look at the, the Book of Mormon uh, for a, a comparison, uh, look at the archaeology uh, of investigating the Book of Mormon, uh, we find a pervasive lack of expected evidence for events from the Book of Mormon that are meant to have happened uh, in the States. Uh, Dr. David Johnson, who's a professor of anthropology from Brigham Young University, 
uh, says there is no archaeological proof of the Book of Mormon. There's absolutely no archaeological evidence that you can tie directly to events that took place. Uh, for example, um, there's a description of a huge battle in the Book of Mormon 6, 10 to 15, uh, that uh, hundreds of thousands of people were meant to have been killed on or near the hill Cumorah uh, during this battle, and we really would expect to find some artefacts left over from that. Uh, I mean, thousands of bullets are found at the site of the smaller American Civil War battle of Gettysburg, uh, but nothing has been found at Hill Cumorah relating to this supposed uh, ancient battle there. Uh, this is the sort of evidence of uh, absence, absence of evidence that constitutes evidence of absence. Um, and Dawkins tries to make the same move with the Old Testament. He says, for example, you'd think that such a big event as the enslavement of an entire nation and its mass migration generations later in the Exodus would have left traces in the archaeological record and in the written histories of Egypt. Unfortunately, there's no evidence of either kind, no evidence of anything like a Jewish captivity in Egypt. It probably never happened, although the legend is burned deep into Jewish culture. But uh, Thomas W. Davis, for example, well, he is an archaeologist, and this is from an essay he wrote about Exodus on the ground, uh, the elusive signature of nomads in Sinai, and he, he disagrees. He says, no direct evidence has yet been uncovered to ground the Exodus in historical physical space, but the this absence of evidence is often interpreted as a direct challenge to the historicity of the biblical account. However, the formation process that affects archaeological data in remote desert environments such as Sinai, and the nature of the archaeological signature of a migratory group uh, uh, force a reassessment of this negative conclusion. Finding direct evidence of a single-use campsite of a nomadic people group that can be dated in isolation in the Sinai is a totally unrealistic expectation, he says. Uh, Dawkins says uh, King David made no impact either on archaeology or on written history outside the Bible. This suggests that if he existed at all, he was probably a minor local chieftain rather than the great king of legend and song. Dawkins obviously just doesn't know that the publication of fragments of an old Aramaic stela um, inscription on a stone from Tel Dan in 1993 and 1995 brought to light the first recognised non-biblical mention of the 10th century King David uh, in a text that reflected events of the year 841 um, would have been set uh, set up no great interval after that date. Um, this stealer famously uh, mentions the House of David, uh, talking about someone who'd gone to battle against a king of the House of David. Eric Klein, a professor of classics, anthropology and history at George Washington University, explains... Uh, the finding of this inscription brought an end to the debate and settled the question of whether David was an actual historical person. Dawkins just simply hasn't done his research here. Uh, there are other uh, inscriptions as well, notably the, the Misha Stile, uh, called the, the Moabite uh, Stone, um, also mentioned on this slide here. Um, 
what about the, the Davidic State? Uh, here's a find from 2014. Um, Jimmy Harden, an associate professor uh, of a department of anthropology and Middle Eastern cultures, describes this find of a little boule, a little clay seal impression uh, about the size of your thumbnail it would be. He says our preliminary results indicated that this site that they found this uh, these boule at uh, is integrated into a political entity that's typified by elite activities, suggesting that a state had already been formed in the 10th century BC at the time of David. These boule date from the 10th century BC, and this lends general support to the historical veracity of David and Solomon as recorded in the Hebrew biblical texts, because you have these official sort of state uh, seals uh, being used for delivering documents and so on. Or a 2018 discovery at Tel Eton, uh, believed to be the biblical site of Eglon, uh, has yielded further proof of the biblical account of David's kingdom. Tel Eton, on the southeastern edge of ancient Israel's territory, uh, has construction dated to the period of King David, including a construction type uh, unique to Israel, the four-room house. Discoveries from this outpost city fit the biblical description of a continually expanding kingdom during the reign of King David. Uh, there are lots of other examples one could give, but here's a lovely quote from a recent book by Yosef uh, Garfinkel uh, et al. Uh, in their recent book, In the Footsteps of King David, Revelations from a Biblical City. And it's worth uh, quoting them at some length here. They say, uh, historical processes and cultural phenomena referred to in the Bible relating to the 10th century BC uh, find concrete expression at Kirpit Krifa, I probably mangled the pronunciation there, uh, at the same time period. Such clear examples of correspondence between the archaeological finds and the biblical tradition stand in contrast to the theories of scholars advocating uh, a minimalist approach, uh, minimal history in the Old Testament. And their assertion that the Bible was written during the, the Hellenistic or Persian period or at the end of the 7th century BC and contains no historical memory from these earlier time periods, uh, but who have no data or finds to support such views, no positive evidence. Uh, the excavations at this town that they've been digging up have uh, provided archaeological evidence corroborating historical memories from the time of King David. The excavation showed uh, that at the end of the 11th century BC, an urban society, a central monarchy, began to take shape in the Kingdom of Judah. The proposal that the Bible was written many hundreds of years after the events it describes, and that it reflects only the period at which it was writ written and not these uh, earlier events, they say is no longer sustainable. So we have a, a faulty argument from silence where Dawkins just hasn't done his research basically. Finally uh, Dawkins asserts that the there is the existence of, of extra biblical evidence uh, against the historical truth of certain Old Testament stories. Uh, Again, unfortunately, this just comes from uh, ignorance on Dawkins' part. So Dawkins particularly asserts that um, there's an anachronism in the Old Testament stories of Abraham, uh, where it mentions that he had uh, camels. Uh, and Dawkins says, well, the camel was not domesticated until many centuries after Abraham is supposed to have died. 
so this shows the story was written late and reflects uh, this later time period and can't be reliable history about what happened in, in Abraham's day because of this anachronism with the camels. Uh, but as uh, Kenneth Kitchen, the British Egyptologist, writes, it's often asserted that the mention of camels and their use is an anachronism in Genesis. This charge is simply not true, as there is both written and archaeological evidence for knowledge and use of this animal in the early 2nd millennium BC and even earlier. That's uh, from his book, The Ancient Orient and Old Testament. Uh, and in another book by Kitchen in On the Reliability of the Old Testament, uh, he lists a bunch of evidence uh, for this claim, including a 19th, uh, 18th century BC figurine of a kneeling camel, uh, a North Syrian seal depicting deities riding camels from the 18th century BC, references to camels in a Sumerian text dating to the early 2nd millennium. Uh, Kitchen says there are other traces of camels much earlier, in Egypt and Arabia in the 3rd millennium BC. The camel was for a long time a marginal beast in most of the historic ancient Near East, including Egypt, but it was not wholly unknown or anachronistic before or during 2000, uh, 2110 BC. And in his comprehensive study of the domestication of camels, which you can uh, find online for free, uh, Professor K. Martin Hyde concludes that the archaeological evidence points to the fact that the Bacterian camel, you know there are two different sorts of camels, the Bacterian camel was domesticated before the Dromedary camel and was put into use by the middle of the third millennium or earlier. The gradual spread of the Bacterian camel seems to have reached the Mesopotamian civilization sporadically by the middle of the third millennium and more frequently at the end of the third beginning of the second millennium. The archaeological and inscriptional evidence allows at least the domesticated bacterian camel to have existed at Abraham's time. So in general, as Paul Copan here says, um, these once doubted historical claims of the Old Testament uh, that scholars, particularly in sort of German 19th century liberal theology, used to pounce upon, uh, whether the cost of slaves in the ancient Near East or camels on livestock lists during the time of Abraham or the kingship of David, uh, we've now got archaeology uh, relating to the minds of Solomon, uh, the metallurgy of the Philistines, the existence of the Hittites, uh, these all turn out to be anchored in ancient Near Eastern history. Uh, one recent lovely example uh, out of many that can be given, but this is a recent find from 2018, uh, one of these impression, seal impressions, uh, discovered just south of the Temple Mount, uh, archaeologist, uh, Jewish archaeologist Elat Mezar and her team discovered this uh, seal impression that uh, a little bit of it is missing but it seems very probable uh, that the complete inscription uh, would have read belonging to Isaiah uh, the prophet. Um, this uh, upper portion of the seals missing and the left side has been smudged a bit uh, by a finger in the, the wet clay before it dried um, but reconstructing just a few Hebrew letters in this damaged area would cause the impression to read belonging to Isaiah the prophet. And that 
together with the time period at which it's found, the location in which it's found, and names on other seals around uh, the same place, make this very likely that this was the seal of Isaiah uh, the prophet. Uh, I have other talks on, you can find on my podcast through my website and so on on Old Testament archaeology if this uh, piques your interest in these kind of things. So anyway, Dawkins makes these sort of four general areas of assertions about scholars not taking the uh, Old Testament seriously, about extraordinary evidence and, and sort of a reheated humanism. Uh, an absence of evidence that he generally just doesn't know about or that there's extra biblical evidence against these historical claims uh, which again go down to uh, his uh, his ignorance on these matters so i would to summarize and conclude uh, from this uh, sort of urge that in our um, preaching and teaching and sort of uh, encouraging of one another and talking with non-christians we can certainly show that there are uh, well-credentialed scholars who take the Bible, including the Old Testament, uh, very seriously. Uh, we can quote the occasional scholar in our preaching and so on. I think we should, should do that. Uh, we can address people's worldview-based assumptions and questions like, you know, are miracles possible? Are miracles knowable? This is really not an issue to do with the, the historical evidence so much as it is with the worldview that people bring to it. You know, um, Dawkins is really just sort of begging the question against miracles being possible and uh, to cut a long story short, to do that really you'd have to have a very good argument showing that there couldn't be a God because if there, you know, there could be a God uh, then a, a God could work miracles uh, and so they could happen and it really then becomes a question of looking at the evidence in detail uh, which is something that uh, Dawkins generally avoids doing. Uh, I think it's good that we, we, we learn and that we teach critical thinking skills. I've been doing that through this talk by looking at you know what is an argument from silence, what is a fallacious generalization and so on. Uh, it's good to